Right now, American heroes are in some of the most dangerous places on Earth, risking their lives to protect our freedom. But there are a forgotten group of heroes here at home. They face fear, loneliness, and despair, the ever-present threat of losing a loved one. These are the brave sons and daughters of the U.S. military, and they are heroes too. American Bible Society brings the hope and comfort of God's Word to the kids that need it most. Honor a hero and donate today at AmericanBible.org slash hero. This is Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Okay, so welcome to Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. I am Janelle King, and I'm so, so excited to talk about ESG. Now, when I first heard this acronym, I was on a campaign trail with my husband, and someone, a, a lady stood up and said um, to, to Kelvin, you know, what, what do you think about ESG? Now, what I noticed is that majority of the people in the room were really confused. They had no clue what she was talking about. But it, thank God, my husband, fortunately, he knew and he had some understanding of this topic and at least enough to provide a solid answer. But I wasn't surprised that Kelvin understood because he follows things like business and stocks and all that type of stuff. And he's really into the business market. So, you know, that was something that I didn't surprise me. But to to the common person, to to the person who is just, you know, going along with their day, this can be extremely, extremely confusing. So for those of you who are either just tuning in or you haven't heard the term or the, the acronym ESG before, I'm going to give you a tiny, tiny breakdown, and then I'm going to bring in my guests. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And the purpose, supposedly, of these metrics is to see how um, businesses and corporations measure up against other their competition. That's what they tell you. But, you know, under the E, they look at, you know, your water usage, waste production, environmental efficiency, things things like that. The S represents social and they look at how you treat your clients, um, how you treat those who work for you or with you as far as, and, and then they go into diversity as far as ethnic, ethnic uh, background, all that stuff, sexual orientation, all those things. And then under G, the governance, it's, um, it's kind of focuses on, you know, a shared structure, like how, how you, how you structure your business, um, overall governance policy and procedures. And I heard someone say that is sort of an assessment of companies without looking at their balance sheet. So that all sounds great in, in, in the interim, I guess you could say, or just from the, the, from the basic explanation. But from my understanding, you know, the rise and fall of businesses has always included these things. Like these, this is stuff that's always kind of been around and that companies typically have adjusted their pricing, um, some of their products and services to, to accommodate their customer base. So this is stuff that's always been around. The difference is at one point in time, we allowed the market to drive rather than driving the market. And I feel like ESG is a concern for me because I feel like we are now taking the control out of the consumer base and out of the customer's hands and we're putting it in the hands of some top elite people who feel like they know best for everyone. When the market is driven, we're now putting the power in the hands of a few people rather than allowing the market to drive change and then therefore the power is in the hands of the people. So that's kind of my brief overview, but 
I'm going to bring in James Copeland, which I call him Jim, and so we'll ask him when he comes on what he wants to be called. But James is a senior fellow and a director of legal policy for the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. On multiple occasions, he has been named the National Association of Corporate Directors, Directorship 100 list, been named on that list, which designates um, the individuals most influential over U.S. corporate governance. Copeland holds a JD and an MBA from Yale and an MSc, which is like a master's in science and politics of the world of economy from the London School of Economics and a BA in economics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His latest book, The Unelected, How an Unaccountable Elite is Governing America, Encounter Books, has published in September 2020. So joining me today is James or Jim. We'll find out. (laughs) So let's talk. How are you? I'm great, Janelle. Thanks for having me. And Jim is just fine. That's what my friends call me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am happy to be in that number. Let's just dive in. Um, You know, so I guess I gave my brief overview, but my, my first question is, should private business owners be concerned about ESG? And what are you seeing that's concerning to you? Well, I mean, ESG, as you explained it quite correctly to, to the audience, is, is sort of an aggregation of a lot of different things. So let's take the G there, the governance. You know, if you're an investor in a private, in a company, a private business, as a stockholder, you are worried about various governance rules. How do you elect the board of directors? You know, how often do you get to vote for directors? What does it take to boot out a director? I mean, these are the ways you protect your financial interests in the company. Unlike a, a, a customer or a supplier or an employee or a lender, you don't have a contract that entitles you to this, that, or the other in your contract. You're basically just entitled to the residual earnings of the corporation. So, you know, and it's you, you've got to therefore be able to keep tabs on what management's doing so they don't just go off and give your money to themselves, right? And, mm-hmm. and this is why we have corporate law fiduciary duties. So, so, so to some degree, yes, you should pay attention to this sort of stuff, but that's a little bit different than what we're seeing these big asset management fund companies do. And we'll get into to, to, to why it's those folks I'm particularly focused on. Uh, it really is a small number of big asset managers that control a large chunk of the U.S. stock market, and they've increasingly been doing this environmental and social sort of policy activism, and that's concerning for a couple reasons. As a shareholder, I think it undercuts the traditional corporate law fiduciary duties centered around shareholder value, uh, which are designed to make sure that uh, you're able to watch over managers, uh, and that's why we really have these shareholder corporations in the first place as as our principal form of ownership with with dispersed stockholders, right? I mean, if you you own your own business and just raise money from the bank, uh, you don't have those sort of fiduciary duties. But if you get these dispersed stockholders, which is what most large business enterprises in this country have long been arranged with, it it creates problems. It also also, I think, creates problems for our democratic process. And this intersects with what I wrote about in my book, The Unelected, because what you have are these sort of plutocrats mm-hmm. running the big asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, that are 
making choices Mm -hmm. based on their political values for things like climate change or natural gas fracking or uh, sexual orientation, gender, Mm -hmm. race, uh, et cetera, diversity, various sorts of human rights issues, animal rights issues, et cetera. They They can orient themselves around these policy questions. And because of their concentrated stockholder earning, but stockholder holdings in various large corporations, effectively act as a mini Congress and regulate these companies in ways that we've decided not to do through mm-hmm. our electoral process with the people we send to the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. And so that's that's really yeah. the, the other concern. It really under, under, uh, undermines our, our democratic decision-making as well uh, mm-hmm. as an electoral republic. That's a great point. So let's dive into that a little bit. So something that really stood out to me was these ESG scores that they're giving businesses. And so to kind of elaborate a little bit on what you said, there are there are these huge you know conglomerates of of, of, of finance and, and wealth holders that are that are basically buying stock. And correct me if I'm wrong, okay? So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to um, bring it down to my level, right? <laughs> so they are pre- pretty much buying stocks in in these companies, large portions of it, and then I guess if these companies don't do what they think they should be doing for the environment or issues that are concerning to them, then they're threatening to pull out. Or how do they control businesses in that way and can you talk about these scores and who's tracking them and what do they mean yeah i mean various folks track different metrics here you know i I, i'm I'm dubious that there's much value behind any of this beyond trying to strong arm the corporations to act in a certain way Mm -hmm. consistent with the the social and policy goals of of the investors doing this and there's there's a lot of sort of financial theory that undermine uh, underlies why i'm suspicious of this um this sort of investing and listen there's 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 a notion of social investing and it has existed for a long time and so the old school social investing is what I call the Pontius Pilate investing, right? I'm going to clean my hands of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the notion of, oh, well, we don't like tobacco stocks, or we don't like alcohol stocks, or we don't like munitions that go t- into war. And so we're not going to invest in that. And you as an individual investor can decide, I don't want my money going into that. I think it's blood money. I don't want to put my money there, and I'm not going to invest that way. Now, the problem with that is, it really it probably hurts your investment return, right? And there have been studies done by the California pension system when California said we're going to get out of tobacco that said, oh, this costs us a whole bunch of money uh, in terms of our pension returns by getting out of tobacco. And that even comes a bigger issue when you look at something like, say, oil and energy stocks, a much bigger share of the total stock market that you're going to be getting out of. Um, and, and, and essentially what you're doing, it, it, you know, the ESG people will say, present this as if it's cost-free. Mm-hmm. say, well, these things are undervalued. But essentially what you're doing is saying, we're smarter than everyone else in the stock market. Um, and mm-hmm. and so the stock markets misprice these things. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a sort of rule, it's a rule adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a standard rule in financial economics, sort of the efficient market hypothesis. And, and except for the super strong form of that, no one believes that it's impossible to second-guess the market. It's impo- No one believes that the market prices are perfectly efficient. That's why they can gyrate pretty wildly. Mm-hmm. But 
generally it's hard to outsmart the sort of collective wisdom of the market and 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 so you're probably yeah. hurting yourself and what what you're definitely doing is hurting yourself if you're just going to say well we've got an idea that's better than the market and we're going to announce it and we're going to do these yeah. scores and these scores are going to determine our investments um, and and lo and behold uh, uh, we're announcing it to the world well anyone else if, if it were to work anyone else could sort of copy you and do the same thing so you wouldn't be able to actually outperform the market doing that. The reality right. is they're probably hurting the returns somewhat, but 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 in the long run, there certainly can be windows of time where if they're, you know, underinvesting in one sector, that sector may underperform, you know, by by an accident you wouldn't necessarily have anticipated up front and so the returns can look pretty good. But but the okay. new form of investing isn't this sort of Pontius Pilate I'm not going to invest investing. It's I'm going to invest in everything and then we're going to lean into management <laughs> and lean into boards of directors and tell them what they should do. So yeah. they they should reduce their carbon footprint. They should have a, a set demographic composition of their board uh, and things like this. And so uh, these yeah. sorts of, 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 of new ESG strategies, um, you know, don't as yeah. obviously reduce the return in any individual investment because, you know, listen, I mean, these things may or may not uh, hurt the shareholder return somewhat, but, but if, if they're going to be sort of pushing these things economy-wide, it they just really hurt, hurt the overall uh, market performance at the margin. But yeah. these, investment, these investment vehicles, these asset managers, by and large, aren't getting paid uh, based on their active investment decisions. Some of them are actively managed funds, but they basically take a, a set fee out, and the game is attracting more assets under management. And so what, what's happened here has been a, a disjunction. I, I wrote this in a comment letter uh, in, in June to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is you know, trying to impose various of these climate disclosures, these ESG-related climate disclosures on all businesses. And my argument is that this is illegal. I think at the end of the day, this will probably fail. Um, but I went through all this. And, and, and what, what my, my point was there is that there is a, a fiduciary duty to the customers. You give your money to Vanguard, you give your money to BlackRock, or your pension fund is invested through those folks. Um, and they're supposed to be uh, maximizing your rate of return. But their actual pecuniary interest as fund managers for these sorts of funds, these aren't activist funds that are buying a big stake in the company and trying to turn it around or fire the CEO and, and mm -hmm. spin off assets and things like this that are making big bets. They're basically investing in the total stock market as index fund type vehicles, and their pecuniary interests lie in maximizing their assets under management. And so what they found is, well, if we're just following the S&P index, we're not really making affirmative buy-sell decisions on our own about which stocks are better. Um, and we're just buying the index and then leaning into the companies in these ESG ways, well, maybe we can attract some more assets under management by appealing to Gen Z and millennials' sort of woke and environmental concerns. And, and, and that seems to have been happening. I mean, BlackRock, 60% of its annual growth in 2020 uh, was in its sort of sustainability products. So okay. that seems to have been happening on the margin uh, that they're getting more assets under management. It's still a, a, a minority of the total dollars held here, but these tend to be higher profit margin products. They can mm -hmm. charge higher fees, 43% higher fees on average than just a straight index fund, mm -hmm. uh, but they can still then vote their index fund shares consistent with these environmental and social models that are allowing them to pull in uh, more assets under management. Now, I do think this is sort of a ticking time bomb for the 
these folks because conservatives that are on the other side of many of these issues have started to wake up to it. And so you see a lot of conservative uh, office holders in places like Florida and Texas and West Virginia saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, why are we giving you our money to invest and then you're playing these sorts of games? Right. And so I do think they're going to be subject to some sort of blowback. But they've sort of been able to have their cake and eat it too. And yeah. as, as, as the market has migrated towards these investment vehicles that are indexed, in other words, we're not making real buy-sell decisions. We're just following the S&P uh, basket. Um, there's really no way for these funds to, to compete with each other on price and quality because everyone is, is doing the same thing. They're not making independent decisions. I mean, maybe on the margin you can have better uh, reps to answer the phone or a cleaner website, but, 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 but you're really not going to deliver a different value proposition than anyone else. So they've started to lean into these sort of, of, of uh, you know, left-wing policy ideas uh, right. as a consequence. And, and, and so they've got a conflict of interest in that. Um, and, and I think it's one we're just trying to get people to understand and, 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 yeah. and expose what's going on. And it's interesting because we're going to see in a little bit what's going to happen. So at the time of this recording, you know, it just came out that California is trying to ban gas powered cars by 2035. Right. And, and there's no when I think about things like that, I'm just thinking there's no conversation with the people who are going to be impacted by this. Right. It's just like I want this. so I'm going to force it on you. And that's what I believe ESG is. And it kind of reminds me of something. So, you know, in Germany, during the whole Nazi rule, under Nazi rule, um, there were mobs of Germans who submitted to um, um, to, who submitted to Hitler's rule. But I remember there was I remember hearing about how there was chants being being screamed in the in the streets that said, you know, Germans don't buy from Jews. And this was their way of the government, sort of like the government was saying this is the new thing and that Jewish owned businesses were they were spray painted, identified and ultimately destroyed. Um, and so when I hear this, right, when I see the ESG conversation, I can't help but think about that time. And I know that's like a really, really dramatic ex um, example, but it's I can't help but think about that. When I think about these scores, when I think about how they're telling businesses that, you know, you um, have to abide by this, like what, we, what Netflix went through, thank God they kind of fought back. Um, it really does put things in perspective that we are removing control and power out of the hand of the consumer. Um, so w instead of allowing the market to dictate itself, which is something that, you know, we've they're they making it seem like that's antiquated at this point, um, according to ESG. Why do you think that they they are so against just continuing to allow capitalism to do what it's been doing and allowing us as consumers to drive the market? Why do you think they're against that? I mean, that's a complicated question. And, you know, so I would I would always hesitate to compare anything to Nazi Germany or the transatlantic <laughs> trade slave or some, slave trade or some of these things that are just horrific in, yeah. in history. I mean, I don't think this goes that far, but I do think it's it's a little more akin to the whole uh, "don't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs" uh, you know parable <laughs> or fable out there. That you know, I mean, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you know, this this is uh, sort of this uh, the, the indexing thing that's happened, which has been great for individual investors. Anyone listening here wants to put your money in an index fund um, uh, and follow the market and forget about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something you should do. But 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 then it's it's enabled these 
aggregations of capital basically to act as mini oligarchs. So mm. those big three, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, can together control more than $20 trillion of assets. So 95% of the S&P 500 companies, one of those big three is the largest shareholder. So it's mm-hmm. innate, this concentration of power. And these aren't, again, these folks and those, and those institutional investing vehicles in particular, they're not your sort of hedge funds that are, un- that are pouring over the 10 Ks and 10 Qs, the financial statements, and trying to find out what's wrong with this company or what's untapped yeah. value in that company and making big bets. They're really following the S&P 500. They're really just investing in the total stock market, and they're utilizing that power to sort of lean into these, these, these uh, uh, companies in a way that I think is quite pernicious. Now, California has been doing this sort of stuff for years. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the get rid of cars thing is just a more extreme version of what they've already done. So in the United States, I mean, if you get an SUV, it, it, the actual mechanics of that SUV are going to vary depending on which state you buy them in. Some states follow the California model. New York's one of them. Other states uh, will, will follow a, a more permissive model in terms of the way these things are designed, in terms of the, the sort of emissions uh, requirements for the car. I know this because I bought an SUV from a North Carolina dealer where I grew up uh, mm-hmm. when I lived in New York, and they sold me a car that I had to return because I couldn't get that car registered in New York because New York followed the California standard and the car they had followed the North Carolina standard, the other standard. So these sorts of things have already been bubbling up. I think, uh, you know, sometimes it's okay to have state differentiation. I mean, at the end of the day, if California wants to have no cars, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's going to help California in the long run, but, <laughs> right. but, you know, let them do it. People can move to another state. I guess right? everyone's I mean, going to be driving a Tesla, decision. right? <laughs> but, 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 but uh, you know, I, what's, what's I think more pernicious mm-hmm. is this notion that these folks that control these big index investment funds at BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street at all can resolve these sorts of questions themselves without ever going through the, the, the to the voters at all, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what's that's what's really problematic, I think, for us as a as a, as a sort of democratic realm. We have yeah. this sort of capitalist democracy. It's mm-hmm. worked, like you said, mm-hmm. um, and and this really undercuts both the capitalism and the democracy. And that's what's so pernicious about it. Do you feel like there's a global approach to this, or um, is this something that is more so? you know, local in the sense of it being um, American national based, or is it... It, it is somewhat global, and okay. by global, I mean really it's like Europe and the U.S. Um, it's, it's not the rest of the world, but but, yeah. but but that Europe piece is an important piece of this, and it does complicate the analysis somewhat because you know one of the defenses for the SEC getting involved here in climate change sorts of disclosures is well Europe is going to require these sorts of things anyway, and mm-hmm. if we say nothing, then Europe's may become the default standard, so we're really letting the European regulators make these decisions instead of our regulators, right? I don't know if that's a, a good argument. I mean, listen, we have the stock, we have the biggest stock markets. We have the the exchanges that are most robust. We have the most efficient capital markets in the world in this country. Um, so, okay, yeah. we've got to sort of do our own weird regulatory scheme because the Europeans are doing something, uh, and, and and maybe theirs will be even worse. You know, I don't know that that's a great argument, but it does complicate the analysis. You know, these sorts of, of ideas have been bubbling up uh, across the Atlantic, too. And to some degree, the Europeans... Uh, are, are, are more in front of us on, on some of these sorts of ideas. Of course, I mean, the European economy mm-hmm. has, has underperformed the American economy in the last 30 or 40 years for a reason, right? Yeah. So, so we, we t- I mentioned the scores earlier, but how do you how do they vet these companies? I mean, what are you what, what are you hearing as the core, um, I guess, um, the, their, their core method of vetting these companies' performance around ESG? 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's often going to be – what it's not is trying to track these companies' performance um, with an eye towards share value. What it is is trying to track the company's performance with an eye toward, well, how many women are on your board or how many <laughs> black or Hispanic people are on your board or how many gays are on your board or, or you know, wh- how have you reduced your carbon footprints and things like this. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's really what these things are oriented around. So while there's a demand for this from some quarters, it's not a demand. And um, yeah. that is, is is driven by financial returns per se. So they come up gotcha. with these sorts of things, and they can change them each year, and they can change them arbitrarily. And mm-hmm. and they've done this in other arenas, things like you know corporate political spending disclosure, et cetera. And I've tracked that for years. And, and they'll, they can change these formulas each year. And as companies start to come on board, they can sort of put a target on the companies that aren't compliant with what they want to do, and they can browbeat them publicly and say, you're at the bottom of our index. Uh, and, and, and try to damage their brand uh, and, and things like this. Now, at the end of the day, is this really going to affect these companies' stock price? You know, I, I'm a little skeptical that the browbeating will affect the company's <laughs> stock price. But where these folks – and the reason for that is there's enough people in the market that are, that are um, trading to try to make money that is, if, if they depressed it a little bit and got some people to sell, the other people would say, oh, now it's cheap, and they'd buy it right back up and put the price back up. Mm-hmm. But what, what they can do is control through the, the election of directors and the corporate uh, – governance mechanisms uh, the way the companies are, are going to behave because you know directors are usually elected all at once each year and what these big asset management companies have done and the sort of proxy advisory firm companies and they're two big ones and they sort of advise the smaller investors and they basically can control another 15, 20%, 25% of the votes in the stock market. What they've done is, is say, well, you know, we're going to put these sort of shareholder proposals on the ballot. Mm-hmm. They don't require you to do anything by definition. They don't. Rec- they, they can't tie the board's hands with a shareholder plebiscite unless it's something like a vote to approve a merger or something like that. But okay. you know what? 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 What we're saying is, well, if a majority of shareholders vote for this um, and you don't do what it says, or at least respond in a way that we're happy with, we're going to vote no for your directors next time. Mm-hmm. And we saw this last year in 2021 uh, when a when a, a small environmentally focused uh, investor uh, with a small percentage of ExxonMobil stock nominated two dissident directors that were pro-green, you know, anti-Exxon effectively, that they wanted to put on the board of directors, and they were able to solicit the support of these big asset management fund families enough to get those folks on the board. So any board of directors and any CEO is going to have to look at this and say, wow, do I really want to take all these folks on? And and, and so, you know, it's something that Congress ultimately is going to have to think about. You know, this regulatory structure, state law is supposed to govern corporate law. Delaware is the law where most of the big the, the, the state where most of the big companies are incorporated. Um, but, but Congress controls this sort of securities regulation regime to so the Securities and Exchange Commission and then controls the sort of regime that governs institutional investors. And so Congress is going to have to sit and think about this. You know, mm-hmm. How might we um, you know, affect uh, the, the way this is, is happening? And we've seen some yeah. legislation introduced in this Congress um, that could probably make some difference. I don't think it would fix the problem, but it would probably make some positive difference. And you know, the, the, the real question 
question is, is we've got a huge concentration of capital um, being managed by folks that aren't actually making decisions about which stocks to buy and sell. They're really just grouping all of the money together and following the market. And then they're leaning into companies as sort of a mini legislature that doesn't have all the checks and balances <laughs> and limits that we put on our Congress in our own constitution. You know, so that, that, that leads me to this question. So if I'm not a publicly traded business, right, or company, and um, I'm just a small business owner, how do you see this trickling down into small businesses, or do you see that happening at all? You know, well, that's going to be an open legal question as to how much that may or may not happen through this. Um, okay. I, I don't think it's going to happen to small businesses mm-hmm. per se immediately in a direct way, but it but it it, it has and it will in an indirect way, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Coca Cola. Announced within the last you know eighteen months. Now they they've backed away from the sun. They took a lot of blowback. They got rid of their general counsel. But the, 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 Coca Cola had made this announcement. Well, we're only going to hire law firms based on the racial composition of the lawyers that are uh, mm. representing us. And uh, if you don't do that, we'll fire your law firm. So they're basically telling the law firms, you know, these are relative small businesses compared to Coca Cola. You know, here's what the racial demographics of your business are going to look. Like and if you don't want that, we're not gonna gonna take your business. Goldman Sachs, a big business, but you know has 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 said if if you don't have a certain race or gender composition on your board of directors, we will not take your company public. And they mm-hmm. happen to lead the initial public offering markets worldwide. Uh, mm-hmm. So so that's 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 going to have a trickle down effect. You know by definition, right. companies that are going public aren't even public companies yet. You know they're they're not small right. businesses per se. But every small business would love to get to the point where they can do an initial public offering, but they're going to have to go through the gatekeepers like Goldman Sachs, like NASDAQ. NASDAQ, the, the, the stock market, has a similar requirement, although it's currently being challenged in court. Full disclosure, I've got an affidavit in that case okay. arguing that what NASDAQ did is illegal under federal civil rights law. But but, but these are you know these, these sorts of things are happening, and they will trickle down as these requirements come on. And, and, and one thing we saw with the new proposed rule at the SEC on climate change is they've got these sort of different sort of scopes of disclosure uh, related to climate change, some of which reach into private contractors. So you're telling the big publicly traded companies, well, the people that are doing business with you may not be publicly traded, um, but you're going to have to start getting information from them and disclosing it as well. So, so you know, th- these things are growing. Uh, I do think that there will be uh, legal decisions that limit some of this uh, because, you know, we do have a body of law out there, but it's something we're going to have to keep watching. That's great. Okay, so as we're coming to a close, man, I can talk about this for hours because I'm so <laughs> interested, right? <laughs> and I'm hoping that everyone listening is just gathering information because the more we know, even if we are not a part of the you know inner workings of this process, the better and the more we can assist. So can you tell me, um, to, to wrap up, a little bit about what the Manhattan Institute is doing towards this as, and what you're doing working with them? And then a little bit, tell us about your book, because I want to make sure people know how to get Certainly. it, what it's about, and all of that good stuff. Certainly. Well, the Manhattan Institute for years, uh, you know, for a dozen years now, has had this website that I oversee called Proxy Monitor, proxymonitor.org on the internet, and, and it tracks all these shareholder proposals. So you can go in there, you know, it's for the 250 biggest companies, but those are the companies that get most of these 
these sorts of proposals. And you can go in there and look at, uh, you know, what type of proposal. So, you know, is this a human rights proposal? Is this a sustainability proposal? Is this a proposal about gender diversity or whatever it is? You can go in there and track these sorts of proposals, look at them over time, look at who filed them, you know, look at what the vote totals are, et cetera, on this. Uh, and so that's something we've been doing. And, and, and you know, I could say uh, up until about five years ago, never did a board of directors lose a contested vote on these sorts of environmental and social questions. But that has changed within the last five years as these big asset management fund companies, under pressure from social investors, under pressure from some of the blue state pension funds, and I think to try to attract more assets under management and juice up their ESG business lines, have started to lean into these votes. Now, I think they're getting a little bit of cold feet right now uh, because there's some conservative blowback. But this is something we've been doing with Proxy Monitor. And what we're going to be doing with what I, you know, casually call our sort of shareholder capitalism project more broadly is is looking at these vote patterns, not just at the corporate level, but at these asset manager fund levels. Because what we want to do is say, well, if these funds are all saying we want to vote woke uh, or we want to vote uh, on these sort of pro-green factors, well, we want to document what they're doing. Because what that's going to then do is empower, you know, the Florida and Texas and other sorts of states uh, elected officials to say, well, listen, you know, New York's been leaning to you on the other way, but we don't like this, and if you don't change what you're doing, we're going to put our money somewhere else, right? So you want to create these sorts of, of, of power. And we're going to do that and continue to build out both empirical analyses of what's happening, um, but also sort of policy ideas. You know, what could Congress do uh, to, to make this problem a little worse? And then, you know, my book, The Unelected, came out in 2020. You know, in the middle of a pandemic, right before a presidential election, <laughs> but 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 I, but I think it, it goes through. I mean, it touches on these issues in the penultimate chapter. Um, the, you know, it's going to be a future book that, that gets deeper into these sorts of issues. But it really looks at all these sorts of mechanisms that go outside our sort of federal constitutional design to d- to decide national policy questions, and these involve both uh, administrative rulemaking and executive actions, like President Biden just having announced the the. the <laughs> student loan uh, executive action, these yeah. sorts of actions, uh, as as well as uh, sort of enforcement decisions, sort of the threat of prosecution, the threat of civil enforcement, use of guidance documents, and these sorts of things uh, by the executive branch, all of these things to sort of in-run Congress and in-run ordinary legislating, as well as sort of private litigation, sometimes mm-hmm. enabled by statute and sometimes created through what lawyers call the common law, but the, the ability of plaintiff's lawyers uh, – from one state that really is very friendly to the lawsuit to decide national policy questions through that state is, I think, an underappreciated vehicle where unelected officials are making really big policy choices outside the the, the main constitutional design. And then what I call sort of these new anti-federalists as well, where you get the mayor of uh, New York City or the comptroller of New York State or the district attorney of San Mateo, California, you know, doing various enforcement acts actions, various uh, investment decisions, and and various litigation uh, lawsuits that that try to decide national and international global policy questions from their small perch. Now, these folks are technically elected, of course, as is the president, um, but but nobody has elected uh, 
you know, the, the district attorney of San Mateo, California, to decide national policy questions. Right. And, you know, the Constitution delimits the executive branch. We think of it as executing uh, the laws Congress passes for a reason. And I think part of the reason our politics has gotten so debased is that we've yeah. basically defanged Congress and put all this power in these executive branch agencies that sort of churn out regulation after regulation year after year, uh, regardless of who wins elections. You know what? I think your book is awesome. Shining the light on how unelected um, leadership is influencing uh, our, our, our democracy and our constitutional republic is um, is so necessary and it's perfect timing. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining. I, I would love to have you back. Um, you know, like I always say, I, I, I don't look for experts. I typically look for people who are extremely passionate, but it's always an awesome merge when I meet an expert who's also passionate about these particular topics. So, Jim, thank you so much for, for, for coming on and joining us on Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Um, as I've always said, you know, let's make sure you do the work. Make sure that you are looking into things. You have all the information. That's what this is about, making sure that you have information to decide whether you agree with something or disagree, because disagreement is democracy, and I'm all for it. So if you heard something that you didn't like, that's okay. It's totally fine. That's what this is all about. Um, so we've talked about it. Now I'm encouraging you to go talk about it. Thank you so much for joining us on Janelle King's Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Listen each week at thepodcastpark.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and subscribe. Right now, American heroes are in some of the most dangerous places on earth, risking their lives to protect our freedom. But there are a forgotten group of heroes here at home. They face fear, loneliness, and despair, the ever-present threat of losing a loved one. These are the brave sons and daughters of the U.S. military, and they are heroes too. American Bible Society brings the hope and comfort of God's Word to the kids that need it most. Honor a hero and donate today at AmericanBible.org hero. Make the most out of your daily commute or next road trip in a new Audi from Audi Atlanta. And what better way to do it than behind the wheel of a stylish Audi A5 Sportback. Hey, it's Finn, along with my friends at Audi Atlanta, here to introduce this city to the Audi A5 Sportback. With a versatile and athletic design, the beauty lies within. Combining the sleekness of a coupe with the practicality of a four-door hatchback. And right now, you can lease the Audi A5 Sportback for $537 per month. Find yours at AudiAtlanta.com. And use the Jim Ellis Expressway to start or complete your entire purchase online or shop in person on Petrie Boulevard just inside the perimeter. Experience the thrill of driving like never before at Audi Atlanta. Offer applies to a 36-month lease, 2024 Audi A5 Sportback 40, 537 per month, 10,000 miles per year with 4731 due at signing. Example stock number A25954 MSRP 49,905 excludes tax, tag, and title fees. Offer expires 531.24 with approved credit. Have you thought about securing your hard-earned assets? Do you have concerns about the future? Protecting assets is crucial, and that's where Nelson Elder Care Law excels. As a family-owned and family-focused firm, we provide absolute assurance and peace of mind through our trademarked Absolute Protection Trust, tailored services in estate planning, probate administration, Medicaid crisis solutions, guardianship and conservatorship. Our goal is to exceed your expectations and empower informed decisions. Visit NelsonElderCareLaw.com for asset protection and peace of mind. 